Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. I'll be reading chapter 24, verse 14. Matthew 24, 14. And this Gospel of the Kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Father, grant me the mercy, the grace of the power and the presence of Your Holy Spirit in the ministry of a teacher, of a preacher, to handle accurately Your Word this morning. May You enlighten our eyes all the more to see the wonder of the glorious mystery of the Kingdom of God. May we see the King, Jesus, more than ever is the all-satisfying treasure of our souls. (coughs) Amen. About, I don't know, 15, 17 years ago, Pastor John MacArthur wrote a book titled The Gospel According to Jesus. I remember when that came out, listening to Christian radio, it was really controversial. Many people within the evangelical community were upset at that book. I quote at the very main core of why he felt he needed to write it from John MacArthur in the book. I am convinced that the popular evangelistic message of our age is actually lures people into deception. It promises a wonderful, comfortable plan for life. It obliterates the offense of the cross. Though it presents Christ as the way, the truth, and the life, it says nothing of the small gate or the narrow way. Its subject is the love of God, but there is no mention of God's wrath. It sees people as deprived, not depraved. It is full of love and understanding, but there is no mention of a holy God who hates sin. No summons to repentance. No warning of judgment. No call for brokenness. No expectation of a contrite heart. And no reason for deep sorrow over sin. It is a message of easy salvation. A call for a hasty decision which is often accompanied by false promises of health, happiness, and material blessing. This is not the gospel according to Jesus. End quote. I'm going to come back to MacArthur's quote at the end of this sermon. The question that we led into last week and now with our text this morning, Jesus said, and this is the gospel of the kingdom which will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Our question is, what does that mean? What is the gospel of the kingdom? We need to know it because it's what we are supposed to believe 
in and what we as Christian people are supposed to proclaim and are supposed to preach. My main focus where I'm going this morning concerning the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom, all those terms that were introduced last week, is to say focusedly, focusedly, this. The gospel of the kingdom means Jesus is reigning over those who are in the kingdom as king. Say that a little bit more clearly. Everyone who is a true Christian has Jesus as their King, Lord. There's a context I say that in. And we'll come to that at the end of the sermon. But it's simply this. That means that the teaching that has been prevalent within American evangelicalism that would say it is possible to have Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord, the one you obey and submit to, is blatantly unbiblical and really dangerous. Last week we saw Jesus comes on the scene. And in His coming, in the incarnation, and in His ministry, the kingdom with His person that was prophesied about arrived. It's here. The reign of God in a way it never has been. Yet, we saw that the totality or the the fulfillment of the kingdom prophesied in the Old Testament is still not yet and won't come in its consummation until the second coming of Jesus. In other words, that's the mystery of the kingdom. The mystery of the kingdom, you hear that term throughout the New Testament, is that the kingdom is coming in two stages. Not just one. In the king, Jesus' first coming, he comes as the suffering servant riding on a donkey into Jerusalem with a branch of peace and amnesty. At his second coming, he will come on a great white horse with a sword of judgment. So we saw last week, the kingdom is now and it's not yet. The kingdom is coming Christ. It's present. It's, it has been and being fulfilled yet there is the consummation of the kingdom which is still waiting for the second coming. So our focus today is that kingdom is present. It is here. It's been here since Jesus has come. Are you in the kingdom? And the focus of are you in the kingdom is this. Are you in a process of desiring to bow your knee in obedience to the King. The kingdom that Jesus has brought and has been actively breaking into this present evil age is that He has come to deliver His people from their enemies. To establish His rule and lordship or reign over them and to reveal His glory to them. John the Baptist, crazy looking wild man, 
first thing he starts to say at the beginning of his ministry is repent. Because the kingdom of God is at hand. And all four Gospels agree that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of, quote, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight. That was John. John was declaring the kingdom of God that it's right around the corner. Then after him comes Jesus into His public ministry saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Therefore, so what Jesus means as we saw last week is that the kingdom, the rule, the reign of God Himself, which would break into this present world in a way that never has before, is present in His person to reveal His glory, comfort His people, set up His rule and His reign. This is called, as we saw with our text, the Gospel of the Kingdom. Gospel means, y'all know it, good news. This announcement, this reality of the presence of the kingdom coming with Jesus is good news because it's good news for everybody who repents and trusts in God and enters into that kingdom. Another place where Jesus makes it very clear that in His first coming, that kingdom is fulfilled, is present, is breaking through, is in Luke chapter 4. He's already been doing some public ministry. He's becoming more and more well-known. And He returns back to where He was brought up. Nazareth. And that day, during synagogue service... He was a reader. The scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. People really want to know, who does I really think he is? We hear stories about him healing, etc. And they knew this kid since he grew up. And he reads from Isaiah the prophet, quote, the Spirit of the Lord, I'm in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End quote. Remember, he's reading something that the Isaiah the prophet prophesied six to seven hundred years before. And then verse 20 says, And he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on Him. And Jesus began to say to them, Today, this Scripture, this prophecy about the coming King, they know what He's talking about, has been fulfilled in your Hearing. He's saying the time is fulfilled. He's saying, I 
Jesus, this kid from your hometown, am the one Isaiah was referring to. He's saying, in my ministry, the arrival of the kingdom of salvation, of healing, of delivering the oppressed is here. He's saying, God Himself is now revealing His Self as King to save and to deliver. And Jesus is that King. Now, I want us to turn to one other passage of the prophet Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Because it's going to help us focus on this aspect of what does the gospel of the kingdom consist of. What does it mean? Now, before I read verse 7 of Isaiah 52, note, Paul, it's going to sound somewhat familiar, You're going to, I, I know that real well, because Paul quoted it in Romans chapter 10, talking about the Gospel. The Gospel that saves. The Gospel of grace. By grace alone, through faith alone. And he said, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the Gospel. He got it right from here. So, as I read, Listen for the connection between the gospel, good news, and the kingdom. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news. That means gospel there. Who publishes peace. Who brings good good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. Now, listen to the content of the Gospel, of the good news. Who says to Zion, here it is, the Gospel, your God reigns. How beautiful are the feet of Him who preaches and brings the Gospel, Isaiah foresees. Who preaches the Gospel, this is it. Your God rules, reigns over you. Is Lord, is King. The Gospel of the Kingdom that John was to announce its coming and that Jesus in His ministry and fulfillment and incarnation fulfilled is the Gospel that says, Your God reigns, rules over you, commands you, governs you. That, according to the Bible, is the Gospel. And that, according to those who like the Gospel, say, that's good news. He reigns. Now, don't miss this. What he, the Gospel of the Kingdom, the rule, the reign, the Gospel that Isaiah is talking about in chapter 52, your God reigns. He doesn't mean reign in the general sense that He's God. He created everything. He's sovereign. So the, of course God rules over everything. He doesn't mean it that way, though that's true. He means He reigns, as this prophecy will be fulfilled, reigns and rules specifically, savingly, 
revealing His glory to those who are in His reign, defeating their enemy, saving them from sin, and establishing peace and righteousness. In other words, as Isaiah says, here's the Gospel. Here it is. Your God reigns. That's the good news. Your God reigns is essentially the same as saying the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the Gospel of the kingdom is the good news that in Jesus Christ, God's kingly power and authority is breaking into this present evil age like never before. He is now ruling in a new way to save His people from their sins, to deliver them from their enemy, and to reveal His glory to them. All summed up, you can say it this way, to mercifully reign over them as sovereign, as king, as commander. Now, because that's true, Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus never came to save anybody who does not come into the kingdom and have Him as Lord or King. To reign over them. That's why in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15, the King, Jesus, said very plainly, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. This is the Gospel of the Kingdom. That is the good news. Our God reigns. You reign. What's your commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You got it. That's a good one. Don't commit adultery. You got it. Don't be a fornicator. You got it. Don't lie, steal, cheat, gossip, backbite. You got it. I, I want that. There's something about that that it's good because you're king. And I like that. So I make those statements now in a context in which we American evangelicals live, whether you know it or not. And that is this. Especially for the last 150 years about, and into the 20th century, in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and especially in America, fundamentalism and evangelicalism, it permeated, that is a teaching, permeated. One of the ways it permeated at the beginning of the 20th century was through the Schofield Reference Bible. There were no reference Bibles back then, really. Like you can go to your store now, you can get the NIV reference, you can get a Reformation reference, you can get a, a Ryrie reference, you can get all these with references, meaning they got like theological or interpretive notes, etc. on the side. Well, this is the only one you had. Whether you're Pentecostal, you're Baptist, you're Meth. I mean, if you wanted one, you, you got Schofield. And the basic teaching from Schofield and many like this hymn in this camp that had a massive influence on American evangelicalism and what it would become 
one of their main teachings was this. Jesus came, and in His ministry, as you read, He came, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to preach what was prophesied, the kingdom of God to Israel, to the Jews. And as you read the Gospel, you see Jesus make a switch right around Matthew chapter 12. It got to the point where, they would say, Israel as a whole rejected the message of God ruling and reigning and Jerusalem is king. And so, for a time being, plan to the Gospel of grace. The kingdom of God is one thing. A king commands, rules, demands obedience. But the Gospel of grace for this period of time is another thing. He'll come back at the end of this age and come back and preach the Gospel again and reign from Jerusalem. That teaching is profoundly mistaken. There's only one message that Jesus came to preach, and it's the Gospel of the Kingdom. It's the Gospel. Our God reigns. And everybody who is saved, if we can just use that buzzword of evangelicalism, saved, you're a Christian, I've come, I've been converted to Him, means they are in a process of submitting. Never perfectly. But there is, there must be some reality of He's my Lord. I still have sinful inclinations, but I'm in a process, it's called sanctification, of Him, Lord. The idea that it's possible to say, I am saved, I am forgiven, I'm going to heaven, signed, sealed, delivered, and whether I ever show any signs that He's my Lord, any signs of obedience to Him, it's irrelevant to my salvation, is an aberrant, false, and dangerous doctrine. For instance, once Jesus died, rose again, and ascended, what did the early church preach? The gospel of grace? That meant something very different than a kingly rule over you? For instance, let's look. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Philip preaching in Samaria. And now the text says, they believed Philip as he preached the Gospel. The good news about the Kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, Philip preached in the church age the Gospel, the Kingdom of God. Acts chapter 19, verse 8 sums up the Apostle Paul's preaching in Ephesus saying, And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts 20, verse 35, when Paul sums up his own ministry in Ephesus among the elders assembled there, he says, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming The kingdom will see my face again. His ministry 
was a ministry of preaching the kingdom of God. That is the rule and the reign of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And at the very end of the book of Acts, the ministry in the first 30-so years of the church age, when Paul was still in prison, but allowed to live in his own house, but under house arrest, Acts ends this way. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed in Rome all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The gospel of the kingdom is what the gospel is. Let me sum up the last two weeks. And say, well, okay, the kingdom of God, in what does the kingdom mean? I, again, I know, I'm redundant, and I think in the long run you'll thank me. The kingdom of God means the reign of God. Now, the ruling over, not now, not spatially. In other words, shoot, we've got to get in a car and kind of drive over there to get within the boundaries of the kingdom. No. You could be in this very room right now and one person is in the kingdom, the rule, the reign of God, and another person is not in it. You could be here in Lomita in the kingdom or you could be on planet Mars and be in the same kingdom. That is, under the reign of God. That's why in, in Paul said in Romans chapter 14, verse 17, see, when you're in the kingdom, there's a rule and there's a reign that is going on with those subjects who are under the king. Paul said it this way, the kingdom of God, there we go again, New Testament, epistle, church age, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but it is what? It is a matter of righteousness being produced in you and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There are subjects of the King who actually in singing, worship, reading, praying, meditating, find an otherworldly joy. And it is because they are in the realm under the reign of the King Jesus by the work of the Spirit. It is a, in other words, reign, not a spatial realm. Secondly, the kingdom of God refers to His saving, redemptive reign. In other words, not to His providence over all things. See, in one sense, yes, God reigns over everything. So you could call, in one sense, everything is God's kingdom that exists. But that is not the way the New Testament is referring to the term the kingdom of God. He means 
this realm in which some are in and some are not in, and some are not in now and may come in. Come into the kingdom. means His redemptive, saving, merciful reigning over subjects that He is saving unto Himself forever. They have eternal life. Thirdly, the term kingdom of God, as we have seen, especially last week, is partially fulfilled now in the present. It's invisible. One day, though, it will be totally fulfilled in its consummation and also become visible with a new heavens, a new earth, and Christ Jesus in His resurrected body ruling. That's why the Apostle Paul could speak of it as future in one breath and as present in another. For instance, in 1 Corinthians and in the book of Galatians, Paul made it clear that unbelievers, even if they're church-going, professing believers, but they live a particular lifestyle, he calls them unbelievers, and he says they shall not inherit, that's a future thing, inherit the kingdom of God that's coming. But he also said in Colossians 1, verse 13, for instance, to believers, quote, He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now that's past. Or, and now you live in the present kingdom. So it's present and there's still an aspect of the kingdom that's not yet. Fourthly, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ are the same. There's no difference. It doesn't mean anything different. For instance, in Ephesians 5.5, Paul says, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In other words, there's only one kingdom. It is the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of Christ. To be in the kingdom of Christ is to be in the kingdom of God. To be in the kingdom of God is to be in Christ. Paul uses the term in Christ much in his letters. It's another way of saying you're in the realm supernaturally of Christ the King. You're in the kingdom. And the evidence. Here's the big key this morning. What is the evidence? that somebody is in the kingdom as opposed to not being in the kingdom. The evidence is that that person, it's very simple, loves the gospel of the kingdom. Say the same thing with different words. The evidence is something is so transpired that from the heart, that person who has come into the kingdom loves the good news. That means to them, they are experiencing it as good news. My God reigns over me. He's Lord over me. That's why Paul, a preacher of the gospel of grace, 
of the gospel of the kingdom. Same thing. That's why Paul could say in Ephesians 5.5, 5, you may be sure of this. You don't doubt Paul. If Paul doesn't fit your theology, if he doesn't fit mine, I think it's safer to change our theology so that it fits the revelatory spokesperson, Paul, an apostle, instead of vice versa. He says, you could be sure of this. That everyone who has a, a lifestyle, an unrepentant, habitual lifestyle of sexual immorality, or they're impure, or they live a life of covetousness, which at its core is idolatry, that person, you could be sure, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Why? Because to be in the rule, the reign of Christ, of God, that supernatural thing, is to have had the King so change your desires that you can not continue to live habitually in blatant biblical commands or against them. You may do them, but it's not the same anymore. Where one used to enjoy living in sexual promiscuity, they have thus been thrust into the kingdom one day and they go home, oh, their boyfriend still lives in the same house. Just let enough time go by and she, or turn it around, he, there will finally be a break they will not be able to continue in disobedience to the king without their conscience being convicted and hating it. That's the work in the rule of the king. That's why Paul says, people that just think, I'm okay. I profess Christ. I signed a card. I said a prayer in the last 15 years. Shows a lifestyle that is no different whatsoever. You could be sure. It's a false profession. They're not in the kingdom. Christ is not lording lovingly and mercifully over them. They are not submitting to Christ. This is why the teaching that it's possible to have Jesus as your Savior from sin and get to heaven and miss hell to have Him as Savior, but not necessarily as Lord. It's unbiblical, but it, it's, it's so dangerous to people's souls. Back to where I started. It is that type of doctrine, whether it's blatant, and it has been blatant and said very clearly, or other people don't know where it's coming from, they, don't, they just think that's what the Gospel is. That's what he's responding to. I took from one of his books a number of quotes to kind of sum up what he, John MacArthur, is coming against in the quote I gave you. For instance, 
This is the teaching that has floated around for so long in the American Evangelical Church. Quote, it's from their mouths. Repentance is a change of mind about Christ. No turning from sin is required for salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. They're going to say, you ought to turn, you ought to become a disciple, and you ought to grow. But it's not required for salvation. <clears throat> Another quote. Saving faith is simply being convinced or giving credence to the truth of the gospel. It is confidence that Christ can remove guilt and give eternal life, not necessarily a personal commitment to Him. That's why people feel... Let me just... Why you, many of you have known. So easy. Oh, let's do the Gospel now. Come up here. Let me, Christ died for your sins. He rose from... Do you believe that? Can, can you give... Can, can you get yourself to say yes to that? Okay. Say a prayer. Ask Him in your heart. You're saved. That's over. Everything else about whether you change your lifestyle, that's in another category. You following me? Another quote from MacArthur's book that he's dealing with. Christians may fall into a state of lifelong carnality. I mean, have you heard that? Carnal means from the word fleshly, live according to the flesh. They can live in a lifelong state of carnality. That is, a whole category of carnal Christian has been developed. Born-again people who continuously live like the unsaved, they, they exist in the church. So the teaching says. Another quote. Disobedience and prolonged sin are no reason to doubt one's reality of faith. One more. Those who have once believed are secure forever. The teaching goes even if they turn away. Now, my 26 years as a Christian, I've heard the teaching so often, and the remnants or the after effects of this teaching is still prevalent. It may be fuzzy, but it is utterly prevalent in the church. Of Jesus. When I was in seminary 15 years ago, I wrote a paper on a theologian named Lewis Sperry Schaefer. He was, ended up being the president of Dallas Theological Seminary in the 19, I think it was 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Dallas Seminary at that time, I'm not saying they are at this time, was one main institution giving forth this, you can have Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. And when I did that paper on Sperry, one of the things in his systematic theology, quote, I quote from it, the New Testament, he says, does not impose repentance upon the unsaved as a condition of salvation. You probably have enough text to go right to your mind. Repent. Believe in the Gospel. Another, the Ryrie Study Bible, which was very popular in American evangelicalism, says that repentance, turning away from sin, is a false addition to faith. 
when it is made a condition of salvation. See, the idea that these Christian people were and some are getting at is that there is no necessary connection. Get the word, necessary. They want it. They think you ought to live godly. But there's no necessary connection between saving faith and obedience in that person's life. Here's a quote from one of them. It is possible, but miserable, to be saved without ever making Christ Lord of your life. What they and many people within the evangelical church are saying is that people can actually be presented the claims of Christ as King, as Lord, not just Savior, as Lord, as King, as Ruler, as Commander, and ultimately be saying this in their lifestyle. No. I do not want to bow to Him as Lord and King. And I don't accept His claim on my life as the authoritative guide and teacher. But still be saved. Because they have assented mentally to the fact and to the facts of the Gospel. Yes, I believe Jesus is a real historical figure who died for sins and rose from the dead. Yes, I want to be saved by Him. And as a result, I say that the mass of disobedient, nominal Christians had to be somehow categorized. Let's go back. Because if the Gospel, I will get so watered down to where it's no Gospel at all, you don't define faith to people, Faith becomes merely mental assent and this, can you say it with your mouth and accept them into your heart and now you're saved, period. When you do that, no one wants to go to hell. Who, who in the right mind is not going to, I'll come down to that altar call. But you can't. No human being has the power or the right or the authority to take any other human being and put them into the kingdom. Only the king does that. Our responsibility is to proclaim the kingdom. But since it's that way, there's a system. Come down, sign a card, you're in, you're saved. Don't ever doubt it. What you end up with, you start to see, they cut, maybe start to come to church and like the fellowship. And you get churches and all of a sudden you start to realize, these people over here are very different than these. <laughs> you start to get a whole group of people that they couldn't care less about seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. They didn't, want, they didn't come for that. They came, I don't want to go to hell. Okay, good. Got a message for me after to go to hell? I accept it. Sign my card. I'm in. Now you've got to have a theology to put them into, and there's been a theology that has developed. They're just called mere believers, as opposed to those who have gone into stage two Christianity of discipleship. What this popular evangelical theology has ultimately done, in my view, is reduce 
saving faith to manageable human terms so that we can make it possible to have steps of conversion without the people ever having a transformation of the heart. And you and the church and elders or leaders and evangelists can give people assurance that you're saved without having any evidence of the authenticity of their faith. What that really is, is a de-supernaturalizing of the gospel. It's a de-supernaturalizing of what saving faith is. And that de-supernaturalizing ruins evangelism. And it ends up giving false assurance of salvation to millions of churchgoers who have never seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's how the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians defines what new birth is. Have never seen you are the gospel, the good news to my heart. You're beautiful what I hear in this. Yet they're told they're saved. They don't have genuine saving faith. The problem with that popular appeal of this is how you evangelize people is that it is utterly shallow. An utterly shallow and thus inadequate view of the gospel and what it means to believe. The popular pattern is come, here are the basic facts. Christ died for your sins, rose from the dead. Can you agree with that? Good. Now ask Him to come into your heart. Did you mean that prayer? Yes. You're saved. Have them sign a card. Get them into a church. Don't ever let anyone doubt it. Cause you to doubt it. It's everywhere. I mean, I dealt with just in this small church we have. We had a person come for six, eight months. And I knew the person and talked with him numbers of times and, and knew another pastor that they that was under at one time. And it was... So he's been churched in another local church... A few years before that, he actually was water baptized. And then he went to another church for a year and a half. And then he started coming here. And then talking to him, it just became, is there any, I'm looking for evidence, I'm looking for evidence, any kind of evidence that he knows Christ, understands the gospel. It finally came, I had a conversation with him one night on the phone. And I just asked him bluntly, just, I mean basic do you have any idea what the gospel is? And I don't mean, you know, and I mean the basic, can you, most, couldn't we say, most evangelicals say at least, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that you ever believe in Him, you can at least mouth that, uh, that Christ, you know, is God coming to flesh, right? Died for sins and He rose from the dead and if you put your trust in Him, you're saved by Him and His grace. Uh, the person could not come close to anything. Nevertheless, the church decided to baptize him. That's vicious to him. That's why it's so dangerous. 
false assurances, a watered-down gospel is ultimately vicious to people. And because of that, no wonder they've developed ultimately that doctrine. You go, oh yeah, that's, no, I can, I, I, know, I know the person's like that, I know he still lives this way, I know, you know, whatever. But you see, he's saved, he's just not a disciple. And it is in that context that John MacArthur, and I will quote him again, says, I am convinced that the popular evangelistic message of our age actually lures people into deception. It promises a wonderful, comfortable plan for life. It obliterates the offense of the cross, though it presents Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. It says nothing of the small gate or the narrow way. Its subject is the love of God, but there is no mention of the God's wrath. I'm just, let me just pause here. Why that's so important? To the extent people don't know about God's wrath, they don't know their plight, they don't know sin, and to that extent, they cannot appreciate and know what the death of Jesus Christ really meant. I continue on, quote, It sees people as deprived, not depraved. It is full of love and understanding, but there is no mention of a holy God who hates sin, no summons to repentance, no warning of judgment, no call for brokenness, no expectation of a contrite heart, and no reason for deep sorrow over sin. It is a message of easy salvation, a call for a hasty decision which is often accompanied by false promises of health, happiness, and material blessing. This is not the gospel according to Jesus. So, what is faith then? That's where it all comes down to. It always comes back to, yes, we're saved by grace, alone, through faith, alone, apart from any works of obedience or cleaning up your life. But the question is, what is faith? And at its core, it is something miraculously birthed by the King. That's what it means when Jesus said, you, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom into my rule and reign. Saving faith is having come to Him and seeing Him. I give you just one very clear New Testament interpretation interpretation, understanding, unfolding of what saving faith is. The Apostle, the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Listen carefully what he says. And listen how he assumes. He's writing to churches spread throughout the Roman Empire. Listen to how he assumes that if you're a Christian, if you come to saving faith what that means about you. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love Him. Though you don't see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and 
full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. We are saved by Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, apart from any works. Here's the point that I am trying to say this morning. The obedience to the King who reigns over you is not some added artificial something tacked on to faith. It is the natural, inevitable outgrowth of coming to Him, of saving faith. Faith is not merely agreeing with the content of the Gospel. It's not. That's essential. But it's not sufficient. Saving faith not only agrees with the content of the Gospel, but it is a heartfelt coming to the Christ, the King of the Gospel. It is an act of the heart that no longer hates the light because it has had a miracle caused by God the Holy Spirit. It gave to the soul new taste buds to taste and see that the light of the glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ is good to it. And so, when they hear the Gospel, It's not merely an affirmation of the truth that's presented. It's something in the heart that leaps because of the new taste buds and says to itself and to its Lord, that's satisfying. That's good. And therefore, obedience to Christ the King is not something artificially, I better get to work or... Obey Christ or obey Him. It's not artificially added. That's called legalism. It is the expression of the heart that works itself out in obedience. It is what faith does. It's not added to faith. Because faith at its core is the soul's cleaving to Jesus for everything that it needs. And this is the work of the kingdom of God. The work of the Holy Spirit. This is the good news to everybody who comes into the kingdom. Our God, He reigns over me. Hallelujah! I'm so happy for that now and forever. Let's pray. O Lord, King Jesus, I pray that You be experientially King over every soul in here or who hears this sermon. I pray that You do 
and continue to do Your kingly work of taking us deeper and deeper into seeing. Into seeing Your kingly glory. Into seeing through the Holy Scripture, by the power of Your Spirit, the glory of God in the face of You, our King, Jesus Christ. May You make us vigilant. May You make us know by experience Jesus' words there are those who are taking the kingdom, the rule and reign of God over them violently because it's good for our soul. Continue to do that even now as we turn our hearts in song towards You, King Jesus. Rise up by Your Holy Spirit. Let Your kingdom rule and reign over us. In Your precious name.